You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I ask you this morning to turn with me to the Old Testament writings, to the book of Genesis. Let us turn to the 11th chapter of the book of Genesis and read there the account of the Tower of Babel. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So far from Genesis chapter 11. Let us turn now to the book of Acts to chapter 2. And we will read the first 13 verses. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Brothers and sisters, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when missionaries prepare for working abroad, one of the things they frequently have to do is go to some kind of language school. For most of them, that means a great deal of hard work. Becoming fluent in another language is, for most people, not really something that comes easily. Recently, I read in, the, in one of our local newspapers that on average, it will take an English-speaking Canadian about 400 hours of concentrated effort to gain just the basic working knowledge of a European language, such as French or German or Dutch. But learning a non-Western language, such as Chinese or Japanese, will 
take the average English-speaking Canadian about 1,600 hours of concentrated effort to just gain a basic working knowledge of that language. And the fact that people in the world are divided by language does make life much more challenging for everyone. Language barriers make mission work much more difficult. They also are a great barrier for international business relations and international diplomacy. And not least of all, they can be a great barrier for personal relations. If you meet someone who cannot speak your language at all, it's very difficult to get to know that person. It's very difficult to establish with that person a really meaningful relationship. Today, though, in Acts chapter 2, we read about some people who didn't have to go to language school, didn't have to put in 400 hours or 1,600 hours of concentrated effort, didn't have to master vocabulary lists and rules of grammar. We read about some people who suddenly and miraculously, by an act of God, require or acquire the amazing ability to speak foreign languages. These people were men and women from Galilee. Their native language was Aramaic, which is very much like Hebrew of the Old Testament. Probably these men and women had also learned a smattering of Greek because everywhere in Galilee you were close to some Greek-speaking cities. And now these Aramaic-speaking men with the smattering perhaps of Greek are suddenly communicating across many different language barriers to a great variety of people from a huge array of nations. And if you put it in the biblical context, it right away strikes you that this is nothing less than a reversal of what happened in the narrative we read a few moments ago of Genesis 11. There in Genesis 11, we we read about the Lord God himself as an act of judgment creating language barriers. And here in Acts 2, the Lord God does just the opposite. He takes language barriers away. The Holy Spirit comes and the result is that spirit-filled men and women are able to communicate the gospel message across language barriers. We read it all and we ask ourselves the question, what does it mean? And why did the Spirit of God come with this specific effect? Well, let us think about these things this morning and do so with the theme, the Lord Jesus Christ pours out the Holy Spirit upon his church. And we will consider, first of all, the time at which he did this. Secondly, the the signs that came with the Spirit. And thirdly, the effect of the Spirit's coming. First of all, then, the time of the Spirit's coming. When we hear the word Pentecost, I think most of us automatically go in our minds to Acts chapter 2. Somehow these two events, the coming of the Spirit and and Pentecost, are inextricably linked to Acts chapter 2. What we do need to realize, though, to get a, a better perspective on the coming of the Spirit is that Pentecost had a long, long history before Acts chapter 2. In fact, if we take the dates of the Old Testament seriously, then we come to the conclusion that the people of God had been celebrating the feast called Pentecost for approximately 1,600 years before the events of Acts chapter 2. For 1,600 years, as long as they had freedom to do so, maybe maybe not in the exile period, 
But for 1,600 years, roughly, the people of God had celebrated this joyful Old Testament feast, which was also sometimes called the Feast of Weeks because it came exactly seven weeks after Passover. And so we should ask ourselves a question this morning. Why did the Lord Jesus Christ in His sovereign wisdom and His oversight of history send the Holy Spirit on precisely this day, this day called Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks, this day with its 1,600-year history proceeding? Why didn't the Lord Jesus Christ send the Holy Spirit immediately after His resurrection from the dead? Or why didn't He send the Holy Spirit immediately after His ascension into heaven at the right hand of God? Why did He wait ten days so that the coming of the Spirit would, would coincide exactly with this Old Testament feast? Surely there must be a special reason for this. After all, nothing in Scripture is by chance and none of the acts of God are are random acts of God. Everything that God does has a set purpose. And to understand that, we can only think for a moment of Christ's death on the cross. We all know when Christ died, He he died at the time of the Feast of Passover. And as, as you will remember, Passover is the great Jewish celebration of the Exodus. Every year at Passover, God's people remembered and celebrated how the Lord had delivered them from the land of slavery. He had given them liberty as His sons and daughters. And so by giving up His life exactly on that day of Passover, the Lord Jesus Christ was demonstrating for all who heard that in Him, in His death on the cross, there is a new exodus. There is an exodus in Him from every form of bondage Bondage to sin, bondage to the fear of death, and bondage to Satan. Every form of bondage is broken by faith in the Son of God who died on Passover long ago, that great feast of liberation. And so when Christ now sends His Holy Spirit exactly 50 days after Passover, on the day of Pentecost, the day of the Feast of Weeks, This tells us once more, brothers and sisters, clearly that the Old Testament feast is being fulfilled in the events of Acts 2. The shadow that God gave in the Feast of Weeks in the Old Testament is becoming the reality. And that means that we'll have to understand something about the Feast of Weeks in order to fathom the significance of the events of Acts 2. You can read a fair bit about the Feast of Weeks in the Old Testament. You might want to do that sometime today. You could turn to Leviticus 23. You could look in Deuteronomy chapter 16 and in other places as well. And you'll find out quickly enough that the Old Testament Feast of Weeks was, above all, a harvest festival. It was a very happy time in the the life of the Israelites, a time of the year to which especially the boys and girls really looked forward. It was a time of festivity. It was a time of celebrating the beginning of the wheat harvest, which God had brought about in his sovereignty and divine power. Through Moses, the Lord God told the people that from the first ripe ears of grain, they should make some flour, and from that flour, they should bake some bread. And of that bread, two loaves were to be especially dedicated to the Lord as a wave offering. The priests would take two loaves made of this freshly ground flour of the first wheat of the year, and he would hold them before the Lord, waving them before the God of heaven, and thus acknowledging, as it were, that 
that this harvest and this bread and all the good things of life come not by chance. They come not from the gods of the Canaanites. They come by the hand of the living God of the covenant, Yahweh. He is the Lord of the harvest. He is the overflowing fountain of all good. The God who gives rain, the God who gives sunshine, the God who gives germination, the God who gives growth at harvest. All of those things were in the forefront of the minds of the Israelites when it was time every year to celebrate Pentecost. Apart from being a greatly loved harvest festival, however, Pentecost had a second association in the minds of the Israelites. Pentecost was also associated in the minds of the Israelites with the giving of the law. For according to old Jewish tradition, and I think it's a pretty good tradition, if you study the Old Testament carefully, you'll see the validity of this old Jewish tradition. The tradition was that it was on the 50th day following the exodus from Egypt that Israel came to Mount Sinai and received the law. So 50 days after the first Passover in Egypt, that great act of liberation, 50 days later, the people were gathered at Mount Sinai. 50 days later, God came down from heaven in a great display of majesty and power and bestowed on his people the precious gift of his holy law. And when you read Exodus 19 and Consider what happened there 50 days after the first Passover. You realize that the Lord came in no ordinary way. The Lord came to his people in an awesome storm. He came to them in a terrifying display of fire. Then Moses ascended the mountain to meet with God. And sometime later, Moses came down the mountain. And in his hand, he had something beautiful. He had the tablets of the law on which God, with his own finger, had inscribed the ten words of his covenant law. And you could think of that time in Exodus 19, that time 50 days after the first Passover. You can think of it as the birthday of the old covenant people. That was the day in which they were constituted as the people of God. That was the day in which God gave them their constitution, their constitution for life as his redeemed people. And now in Acts 2, So many years later, something similar is happening, similar to what happened at Mount Sinai, similar and and yet so much better. For 50 days after the death of Jesus, God again visits his people. The Lord of glory once more shows his presence. Once again, just as at Mount Sinai, there is the sound of a violent storm. And once again, just as at Mount Sinai, there is fire coming down from heaven. And once again, just as at Mount Sinai, the Lord displays upon his people a most precious gift. Moses ascended the mountain, Exodus 19 and 20, and he came down with the law. Jesus ascends into heaven and he comes down 10 days later with the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so we can say that just as Sinai marks the birthday of the old covenant people of God, So Acts 2, Pentecost Day, marks the birthday of the church of Jesus Christ, the birthday of the new covenant people. And what comes out so beautifully, congregation, this morning in this passage is that the gift of the new covenant, the Holy Spirit, is so much better than the gift of the old covenant. The old covenant gift of the law was a precious gift of God because God's law is holy and good and perfect. 
It's a faithful guide and a reliable teacher. It enlightens the blind and it gives stability to the lives of the children of God. And yet the new covenant gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, is so much better, so much richer, so much greater. The Spirit, the Spirit of God comes down and, and immediately astonishing things begin to happen. Immediately a harvest begins, and not of wheat, and not of barley or rye, but immediately a great harvest of redeemed men and women and children. The Spirit comes and, and new life is bestowed. And just in a moment of time, 3,000 people hear the message and come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and are given that wonderful reality of a new communion with God, their Father in heaven. Through the Spirit, the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ begins to gather His church. Just as the Spirit gives life to the plants in the field, so the Spirit gives life in the hearts of these 3,000 sinners. He reconciles them to God and He bestows on them the beautiful gift of covenantal fellowship with their Creator God. That's Acts 2. That's the birthday of the new, of the new covenant church. And now contrast that with what happened when the old covenant was instituted. When God gave the ten words of His covenant to Israel, what did the people say? They said, this is great. This is a beautiful commandment, God. We, we thank you for this law and we promise to keep it. They said that not once, but twice. Wholeheartedly, enthusiastically, they said, this law is great and we are going to live by this law in obedience to the God who delivered us from bondage in Egypt. So they agreed to the terms of the covenant. And yet the next thing we read in the book of Exodus is that they all became covenant breakers. They all became covenant breakers. They created the golden calf. They became apostate from the Lord. And what happened after that? Well, Exodus 32 tells us the bitter consequences. The Lord sent the Levites into the camp of the Israelites with their swords in their hands. You can read it for yourself in Exodus 32. And 3,000 people died. Isn't that a remarkable contrast? The old covenant is instituted. The gift of the law is given. And the result is 3,000 people die because of covenant breaking. What a contrast with Acts chapter 2. When the law comes, 3,000 die. When the Spirit comes, the gift of the new covenant, 3,000 are given life. It reminds us of what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 6 where we find these words. For the written Law kills, but the Spirit gives life. You see, that is a contrast between the old dispensation and the new dispensation, the old covenant and the new. The law, the law of God, however perfect it is, however beautiful, however it enlightens, however it gives structure to the people of God's lives. When all is said and done, what the law really does is it convicts you and it condemns you. It sentences you to condemnation before God as a judge of all the earth. Because the law is written merely on tablets of stone. And when the new covenant is given, then God goes much further. And God writes His law not merely on tablets of stone, 
but he writes it on the living hearts of his people. He instills his will into their hearts so that they begin to do his commandments from the inside out as, as people who are being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. No wonder then that Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 refers to the law which God gave through Moses as the dispensation of death and condemnation. It's such a remarkable phrase that that wonderful revelation of God given on Mount Sinai that inaugurated what Paul came to see eventually as a dispensation of death and condemnation. Whereas the time of the Spirit, Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 3 as a dispensation of righteousness and life. Because through the Spirit, God gives what the law could never give. God gives new life. God gives regeneration. God gives sanctification. God gives a complete reorientation of our lives so that we come to love in glad and joyful submission to the God who created us and the God who redeemed us and gave us life through the Spirit. So we've considered the time of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Let's go on to speak for a while yet about the the signs that came with the Spirit. There sure were a lot of special effects, weren't there, on Pentecost Day long ago. It's a lot more exciting than a normal worship service in the Canadian Reformed churches nowadays. There was a lot of noise. There was a lot of light on Pentecost Sunday. It was actually quite an overwhelming sensory experience. First, there was a sound like that of a, of a violent wind. It doesn't say that there actually was a violent wind, but there was a sound like that of a, of a rushing violent wind. And says Acts 2, this, this sound of the rushing violent wind filled the whole house where the disciples were gathered. Wind is something that comes, of course, in different ways. We can have a, a gentle breeze on a spring day. We can, we can have a powerful storm. And here are the images of the Holy Spirit coming by way of a powerful storm and so entering into the life of the church of God. Well, the image of wind here, brothers and sisters, makes us aware, I think, and that's really the point of the image, makes us aware of our total dependence uh, on the work of the Holy Spirit. To visualize how dependent we are on the work of the Holy Spirit, imagine that you've got a sailboat out on the lake. Unfortunately for you, it's it's a calm day. There is no wind. It's a dead calm, and your boat isn't moving at all. Sailboats have no power of their own. They have no onboard motors. They can't propel themselves by any inherent energy. Only when the wind comes and, and fills the sails does the boat move forward. And when a big wind comes, then the boat moves forward very fast. And so by coming in the form of a powerful rushing wind, the Lord Jesus Christ indicates to his church that it has no power of its own. We Christians don't have some kind of internal strength of our own that enables us to serve the Lord and to bear witness to our Savior. 
But when God's Spirit comes upon us, when the Spirit blows, as it were, through the Word, then, congregation, great things happen. All we have to do is put up our sails as the church of God, and the Spirit will fill those sails. He has promised to do so, and He will carry us forward in the service of the Lord. And if you want to know how to put up your sails, because that's a logical question then, how, how do you do that really? Then you can only look to the example of Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, the Spirit had not yet been given, and the disciples were waiting in Jerusalem for, for, the, for the promised Spirit to come. And what were they doing as they waited? Well, they were gathered around the Word, and they were united in prayer. And you see, that's how you put up your sails as you await the the wind of the Spirit to propel you forward. You put up your sails by by calling upon the name of the Lord. And you put up your sails by immersing yourself in the Word of the Spirit. In this way, the Spirit pushes you forward as individuals. He propels you forward as congregation so that more and more you may walk in the ways of the Lord and more and more may be faithful and effective instruments in the hands of the Spirit to accomplish in this world the will of God. But along with the wind, there were also what appeared to be tongues of fire, we read. A kind of a a big fireball suddenly appeared in the room. It's hard to visualize really how how big it must have been, but but it must have been of of a substantial size. And this fireball, after descending into the room and and hovering there for a moment, it split up and and parts of the fireball went and, and hovered over the head of each one of the disciples. Fireballs, balls of fire, are connected to the coming of the Holy Spirit. And throughout the Bible, we know that fire represents the presence of God. There are too many instances to mention. Just, just let me mention one. Think of Moses at the burning bush. When, when Moses is in the wilderness of Midian, he sees this strange side of the bush that is burning and is yet not burnt up. And he goes to investigate and discovers in that, in that amazing phenomenon the presence of God. The angel of the Lord is there. God himself is there. So fire represents the presence of God. Fire represents also the the holiness and the purity of God. Just as fire purifies, so, so God purifies everything around him. But I think it's important for us to recognize this morning, brothers and sisters, that fire also represents judgment. And maybe that's part of the Pentecost message we'd rather not hear about. But fire in Scripture invariably represents judgment. Think of what John the Baptist had said already in his ministry. He had a very sobering message for the people of the covenant. John the Baptist said, After me comes one who is before me, the thong of his sandals I am not worthy to untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. And maybe we forget about the fire part. And we think only of the spirit part. But in fact, they're connected. John the Baptist talked about the coming Savior who would baptize his people and the world with the spirit and with fire. We could even say with, with the spirit who is fire. The point of this is that the coming of the spirit inaugurates not only a new and greater era of redemption and salvation and fulfillment. But the coming of the Holy Spirit also, brothers and sisters, inaugurates 
a new era of greater judgment, of greater consequences for rebellion against God and disobedience to God. For what happens when the message of the Spirit is resisted? God pours out His Spirit upon the church and the church begins to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The church begins to preach Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior through the church that that message of Jesus Christ will be pressed forth into all the nations and many will be brought into the kingdom of God. But what happens when that message of the Spirit-filled church is resisted? Well, then, says Scripture, then there is judgment. When God has done everything, when God has given his all, as it were, he's given his son, Jesus Christ, he has poured out his spirit, and he has blessed you with the preaching of the spirit-drenched church, and and then you turn away and, and reject that message, well, then there remains for you, says the scripture, only the judgment. Then you will find out personally that God is indeed a consuming fire. And so even though there are no fireballs above the pulpit this morning, and even though your Bible isn't blazing with fire when you read it, maybe that's a good visual to keep in mind to help you understand just really how how serious and how solemn is the preaching of the gospel. It is life-giving. It is life-transforming. It gives forgiveness. It bestows the wisdom of the Spirit. It imparts eternal life. It's extraordinarily rich. But when you resist that message and close your heart against it, then indeed, people of God, there remains the sober reality of judgment. So think of your Bible burning and yet not being burned up. It's burning with the power of the Holy Spirit through which God brings salvation and judgment. Having looked at the time and the signs of Pentecost, let's consider, lastly, the effects. Verse 4 tells us that all of them, that is all the 120 disciples, were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, for the life of me, I don't know why any modern Bible translation still uses the word tongues because the word is simply the word for languages. So by far the best translation of verse 4 is all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. They were real languages. You know, if you have any connection to a charismatic church or a Pentecostally inclined church, you'll know something about speaking in tongues. And we don't have to get into that this morning. But the one thing we can say for sure is that I'm I'm not aware of a single Pentecostal Christian or charismatic believer who claims that what happens in, in their worship experiences is the speaking of foreign languages. None of them even claim that because it clearly isn't a language what's what what they're doing or what they're expressing. It sounds like gibberish to the uninitiated, and even to the initiated, there's no sense that that what's being expressed in speaking in tongues, is a language. And so we know that what's going on in the charismatic movement today is not the same thing that was going on in Acts 2. Because in Acts 2, the disciples were speaking real languages, not gibberish, not babbling, real languages, real words, real communication with a discernible meaning that could be understood. What strikes us about verse 4 really and also with verses 5 and following, is the contrast 
between Acts 2 and Genesis 11. Genesis 11 tells us the story of Babel. It's a story, really, if you want to summarize it, of a, of a humanist uprising against God. The people of the world in the time of the Tower of Babel were aspiring to make themselves glorious. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They weren't content to have God give them a name and make them glorious, but they wanted to make a name for themselves. Indeed, we could say that they were striving to create a society in which there was no need any longer for a creator. A society that was about human glory, human power, human accomplishment, human achievement and unity. But God, of course, didn't allow these people to finish their project, their humanist uprising. He came, he divided the the rebels one from the other. He disrupted the communication and he scattered them over the face of the earth. And we can say then that the confusion of languages in Acts or Genesis 11 was, was a curse. It was a divine act of judgment. God intervened. He did not allow these people to consolidate and magnify their human power. But here in Acts 2, our text of today, God does the opposite of what he did at Babel. Now the curse is reversed. Languages, which which once were a judgment of God, are now claimed by God's Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit claims all the languages of the then-known world. He claims them for what purpose? He claims them for the cause of the gospel. And what will come about through the gospel is not a humanist uprising, not a, not a new world order united by human accomplishments and human achievements. No, what will come about through the gospel, rather, is a new humanity indeed, a new humanity, God's new humanity, which is not united against God, not in defiance of God, but a new humanity now gathered in submission to God, honoring God as creator God, honoring him as redeemer God, and loving and Compliance with his good and perfect will through the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, in Genesis 11, it was all about the mighty works of men. But in Acts 2, when the Spirit comes, it's all about the mighty works of God. Just read verse 11 again of chapter 2. We read that these 120 Spirit-filled disciples were declaring the wonders of God. You could translate that, the mighty works of God. The Spirit comes, the church starts talking about the mighty works of God in all languages. And people hear about the proclamation of those mighty works of God and they come to faith in that mighty God. They become part of the church of that mighty God. And so they become part of that new humanity, that new world order, if you will, not created by by human wisdom and ingenuity and determination, but created by God. God the Creator, God the Redeemer, God the Sanctifier of the world. As Paul says in Ephesians in chapter 4, there is one body. It's not the United Nations one body. There is one body and there is one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all who is above all and through all and in all. You see, that's the beautiful reality that comes into existence. That's the effect of the coming of the Spirit. The Spirit brings about this remarkable gift of preaching the gospel in all known languages. And through that preaching, 
that whole new world order rises up before God to God's glory and for the good of one another. Today, brothers and sisters, that congregation of God, that new humanity, that new human society is still being gathered. True enough, the amazing sights of Acts 2 are no longer with us. They were a one-off display of the divine power. But the effects are still with us. We remain what, what came to be in Acts 2. We remain a spirit-filled church of God. And that means that God is still going to work through us, through us individually as we confess the name of Jesus Christ, through us corporately as we as we commission ministers and send out missionaries and evangelists, God is still going to use us to, to add to and to build up and to consolidate and to perfect this new humanity, this, this God-honoring humanity. All we have to do is put up our sails. Put up our sails in prayer. Put up our sails as we immerse ourselves in the word of the Spirit. And then we can look forward to God using us powerfully to bring about a great harvest of Christian believers. We can look forward to that time when the great multitude, which no man can number, a church gathered from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues, will, will stand before the throne of God and will cry out, Salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.